Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. How do you find your meals? Oh, I go rob ships with my bazooka. Alright, welcome back to Conspirate Normal. It's your host, Adam Sane. Your uh, magnificent and gorgeous co-host, uh, Lukey. Yeah, as always, Luke. Uh, <laughs> back in uh, 2015. Woohoo. Back in USSR. <laughs> Luke, we I don't heard, know how lucky we are. Luke, I heard you working on some side projects, man. Yeah, I've, I've got a side project for my side project, man, and it's uh, it's got some numbers in it to make it sound like ultra trendy, you know, like we're some kind of space age, like metallic kind of metal, like just way far out, man, like like so unique, you know, so far out from any other musician ever. That's right. That's like just about every Nashville musician that you see that you see around. <laughs> yeah, I just I just recently moved to East Nashville. Oh yeah, nice. That's the for anybody who doesn't know. That's the uh, most people don't know. That's the trendy area of Nashville. Yeah, it's, where all it's, the, it's being, all the artistic uh, types being, hang out. It's being gentrified. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe our guest could have something to say about that. But uh, <laughs> Rob, uh, how, say hello to everybody. Happy New Year. Mouthful of nuts. Mouthful of nuts. Mouthful of nuts. <laughs> That's terrible. So, 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 many, so many entendres. Well, Happy this, New Year. Happy New Year. This is all getting over to a good start. I hope everybody had a good like Christmas in the year's time. I hope it was terrible. 
Luke, you were you you were fashionably jobless over Christmas. Fashionably, I, I mean, I, I I feel like I'm like more myself again though. I like Gibson was slowly sucking my soul away. Yeah, yeah. It I think was. You've, I think you've enjoyed it much more. Oh yeah. And we're back on Sunday nights recording. Not that it really matters because anybody's probably listening to this just about any time. But uh, feel a little more sharp on Sunday nights than it was when we were doing Wednesdays. Exactly, dude. Yeah. I was working like work two jobs and. Working all day Monday and Tuesday, and then going into the first job on on Wednesday, and to come Dude, back, I'd be beat, man. I don't know how you do it, man. Yeah, I don't know how I do it either. But uh, and doing this podcast too, so but uh, gotten some pretty good uh, a lot of Facebook uh, a lot of Facebook ads. People have been liking the uh, the Facebook page and liking and complaining and harassing us. That's yeah, that's right. You know, we're trying to we're trying to improve some things. It's all like <laughs> learn as we go and. You know, they, yeah, it, take, it, it only takes sixty episodes to get there. Right? Yeah, I know. Well, we're on episode sixty-eight now, guys. So, oh I mean, God, this is sixty-seven episodes in the last almost three years, and you know, here we are. Uh, had a good last episode with Mr. John Tenney. Thought that was a really good interview. Um, and also, as I'm going to say too, uh, you know, we get a lot of downloads, and over the course of the Christmas time, of course, a lot of that's due to being on Fringe Radio Network, which increases our visibility. We're going to be famous. Our visibility somewhat. So yeah, right. I'm sure we will be. Uh, maybe <laughs> infamous. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We also got to make ourselves a new uh, disclaimer because uh, we keep forgetting that it's Christian radio and. Uh, well, I mean, you know, Fringe Radio Network isn't primarily Christian, but there's a lot oh, of Christian not? shows on there. Uh-huh. I thought a lot of kind of Christian based jokes. I'm way off then. Which you, you probably haven't even been to the website, but it's all right. No, I haven't. <laughs> no, I mean, but when we when you link it on Facebook, I don't have to go to the website. Like all I have to right. do is just click. All you on gotta it do is go click there. Yeah. yeah. So we've had a lot of download. I've had a lot of downloads. At least, but uh, it's about an average of 100 a day, and that's good considering we haven't done anything in like a month. So I want to thank everybody for for downloading and for listening. Uh, really like it when people. Uh, listen to all the shows download all the shows and listen to them i think that's really really great luke thinks that's agents coming after me yeah no not really i was just kidding uh, <laughs> i think i think that they've got better things to do than to like sit there and listen to everyone's podcast and be like what's he talking about yeah really? we know he's on to something <laughs> there's there's all there's all kind of nutty people out there so and we can just say like the words nephilim or something like it, 30 times during the middle of the podcast yeah, i tell you what they they probably uh saw what we're about and like one person probably one time throughout the past three years checked out one episode and says okay these guys don't know anything <laughs> yeah <they're>, <laughs> let's yeah, move we, on we don't we really don't know anything all we, can, all we can do is this guest but uh but tonight uh we have a guest coming on his name is craig Ciccone, and craig is a friend of john tenney's uh, he was actually um, mentioned in a couple of our shows with john where we talked about he's actually john's mentor and him and John used to get together and talk about political assassinations. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about the political assassinations of the 1960s. And also want to kind of talk about a little bit about the JFK assassination and how it compares to a 9-11, kind of the contrast of, with the two. So it's going to be a lot of history, a lot of names and dates, Luke, so... Oh boy! You better get ready to go to bed. Yeah, I'll nestle one. in and get my pillow ready. And yeah, we got a couple behind us yeah, over you, here. So. There's a bed here in the way. So right, you can go sleep. You can sleep on the bed anytime. That's what Bobby used to do when he was here. He was a couple a couple of times he just would fall asleep. I on noticed. The bed. 
Yeah. You like you have the dog, his dog, in here with us. Like, oh, Bob's, I love yeah. you, man. Yeah, you you thought, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I had two guys in here with a short attention span. <laughs> well, you, you've you've really improved. I think the only one that I really ever killed you with was the one about the Pope. So I think yeah, that was oh, the one dude. that you just you just died. I, on. I don't remember anything from that episode. <laughs> Not a thing. I don't even remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was Chris Putnam, who we later had on. And that was a show that you missed. So, but uh, we're gonna try to stick to also kind of like the two week schedule this year as well. So. Uh, I've got some more uh, guests scheduled, but more about that when uh, after on the other side of the interview. So, if you guys are ready, we'll uh, go ahead and go to the guest. Shebang. All right. We'll be right back on Conspiranormal with Craig Chaconi. Okay, we are back on Conspiranormal. Um, and on the line, we have our guest, Mr. Craig Chaconi. Greetings. And, uh, Craig, uh, welcome to Conspiranormal. Thank you very much for everybody who's there and everybody who's listening. I appreciate it. And Craig, you know you were uh, you were suggested to us by uh, Mr. John Tinney, who we had on a couple of times last year. Uh, he was the last uh, the year end guest of 2014, and uh, he had mentioned you as uh, as his mentor and mentioned you as someone that would be good to talk to about uh, assassinations of the 1960s. So now we talk to the Jedi Master. Yeah, we're talking <laughs> to the Jedi Master. <laughs> John Tooney is this the, pa- the Padawan learner. There you go. Well, <laughs> just as, as, I, as I tell any of my students, uh, you know, I learned as much from him as, as he did from me. So we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, yeah. uh, co-mentors. Uh, so. And I was making the point last week that uh, you guys sound a lot alike too. You y'all uh, when we when, when we talked on the phone. Well, thank you. you. I, I'll take that as I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> well, hold, hold on. There's something I need to clarify real quick. Uh, were okay. you guys in the band together? Uh, yes, we 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 played and and we we did not have a conventional idea of what it was like to be in a band. It's whenever we got together and whenever the mood struck us, we'd get out our instruments and we'd play. And uh, uh, John had a, uh, a friend who just happened to own a uh, recording studio in Ferndale. And one night we just said, hey, you want to go record? You know, we, we, had, we had no material. We had nothing in mind. Just, yeah, let's go record. So, so we did. did so, so did Kid Rock steal your riffs too? <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, Kid Rock's um, guitarist, Kenny Olson, I went to school with him. So it's it's very bizarre to see him up on stage with Kid Rock. So, but <clears throat> wow, yeah, no, you're, we, you're we, in Detroit as now. well, right? I'm sorry, you're in Detroit as well. Yes, yes, yeah. And unarmed, if you can believe it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I live in Detroit and I do not own a weapon. Wow. <laughs> well, Rob here, he's from Michigan, but not from that part. But... No, no, yeah, I, yeah. I, I drive around that area. Uh, what kind of music did you guys play? Uh, did you and John play back in the day? Uh, you ask any musician to try to classify or categorize his music, and he hates that. So uh, <laughs> I, I really, I, I could not, I could not even begin to, uh, because, like I said, everything that we created, we created off the cuff, and we created, you know, whatever we felt at, at the time. And, and I guess it, it, so. You're going to press me for it, and if I if I am pressed for an answer, I would have to say that. At that time, it was what would be considered alternative. It would be considered, you know, um, you know. Gotcha. New age, new uh, wave. 
new wave. <laughs> yeah, new age, a lot of a lot of organ solos. Uh, <laughs> well, let's get into talking about the, uh, the subject. I want to know, Craig, how, uh, you know, basically who you are and then, you know, what got you, uh, what brought you into studying kind of like the political assassinations uh, of the 60s. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm an independent historian, which means that I'm not affiliated with any institution. Um, you know, I do my own projects. As an historian, um, I'm always... Uh, uh, you know, receptive to to those events and those people that that call me, as opposed to the other way around. I don't I don't look for things that would interest me. It's actually they call me to do the work, and yeah. and I, that's the best way for me to describe how I got into an event, the JFK assassination that happened before I was born. Uh, I was in right. high school, and a friend of my mother's just. Came over. And we, it was. It was. There was nothing preempting it. We. We didn't. We hadn't talked about Kennedy before, even either his presidency or his assassination. But he brought over a box that he'd obviously been collecting since the '60s of books and articles and other materials having to do with Kennedy's assassination. And on a whim, thought that I would be interested in it. And of course, I was. Uh, you know, the first book that I read um, was a classic called "They've Killed the President" by Robert Sam Anson. And once I read that, I was absolutely hooked. I, I, I could not stop reading. I could not stop researching. And, and that was in high school. So from there, you know, you, you make the connections, historical connections. As an historian, you try to bridge the gaps and you see the patterns in history. And, and you saw what a tumultuous decade it was of the 1960s and how many people lost their lives in, in numerous struggles. And, you know, right. whether we're, we're talking about Medgar Evers, we're talking about Malcolm X, we're talking about Martin Luther King, we're talking about both Kennedy brothers, um, you know, students at Orangeburg and Kent State and Jackson State, and, and of course, the Black Panther Party, which suffered the most casualties. I mean, 30, 36 members, I believe, 36 to 38 members within a five-year period. Wow. Well, what I want to get started talking about, uh, I want to, you know, kind of run down the list a little bit and kind of semi-chronologically. Okay. But I want to kind of start with, uh, you know, you mentioned Malcolm X, and I feel like that's a good place to start, uh, considering we're going to talk a lot about kind of the civil rights struggle. Right. We'll talk a lot about the Black Panthers and, and those guys. Uh, you know, we'll finally talk a little bit about Fred Hampton, but I want to start talking about Malcolm X and, you know, uh, I remember seeing that movie, uh, the movie X, when I was in I was in high school at the time when that movie right. came out. And, you know, right. The big deal, everybody wearing the X hats and shirts and all that stuff. And, Absolutely. And uh, you know, but uh, it, it kind of showed you know Spike Lee in that film. You know, obviously it was the 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 black you know nation of Islam, the black Muslims that had killed him. Right. Uh, but uh, there was some speculation that possibly that there was some the CIA or some FBI involvement with that. Absolutely, because that was that that's certainly an an easy thing to do. It's an easy thing to fall back on uh, a, a prominent leader, not just in the United States but all over the world, um, somebody who could could rally and get people well incite people to think, not incite people to riot. And Malcolm X was one of these. Um, he himself had gone through a couple of evolutions, uh, once when he joined the Nation of Islam when he was in prison. So he goes from a street hustler to the, the second uh, person in the Nation of Islam under Elijah Muhammad. 
that's 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 quite a stretch <laughs> from from going to a thug right. and, and and a a criminal to to somebody who's absolutely disciplined and who is who has educated himself while he was in prison in law in history in philosophy in religion um and then, of course, once he broke with the Nation of Islam, he went through another evolution, another evolutionary period. And um, but getting back to, to whether or not the CIA or the or the FBI had any complicity in his assassination, um, that's not always how our intelligence uh, organizations work. They don't always have to do something that overt. They don't have to do something that direct. Um, one of the technique, one of the techniques that they use. Um, in the tenure of, of J. Edgar Hoover, the, the kind of organization that he created was, you get people to get pissed off enough at each other, you sow dissensions into two different rival organizations, and they'll kill each other. And you yeah. won't have to do anything. So all we're going to do is we're going to send anonymous letters, and we're going to send you know anonymous cartoons, and we're going to try to, to really, you know, rile these people up against each other so that they will do our bidding for us and kill each other off. And unfortunately, yeah, that is... a divide-and-conquer tactic. I'm sorry? A divide-and-conquer tactic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the FBI absolutely nailed it. They perfected that. Um, whether it was the Nation of Islam and other competing groups or even within the Nation of Islam themselves. Because Elijah Muhammad at the time was, was, was old and, and in ill health so it was natural for people to look at, well, who's going to take over should something happen for him? And a lot of people resented the fact that it was Malcolm X. Uh, you know, they, they, they attributed it to his, his wanting the power, which, of course, Malcolm never did. Um, he was always, uh, you know, um, a loyal follower of Elijah Muhammad and always uh, preempted what he said by saying, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us this. Okay. Yeah. But unfortunately, for Malcolm and going through that evolution that I was speaking of, the Nation of Islam was a little too constricted. It was non-political as a, as a group, which is why Elijah Muhammad told Malcolm X not to say anything about the assassination of President Kennedy. Because believe me, Malcolm was just, you know, was just dying to say something, right? And, and Elijah Muhammad said, no, nobody says anything about this, this tragic event. And Malcolm couldn't help it. He did. He, he, you know, he had political thoughts, and he had, you know, um, things to say about it. And despite Elijah Muhammad's order, he did. And so he was he was silenced, and that led to him being ousted from the Nation of Islam. Once I think he, he said that, something like the 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 uh, the chickens were coming home to roost or something. Exactly. Like the, which, 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 which that in and of itself was even taken out of context because people didn't understand what Malcolm meant. He, he, a lot of people, it was kind of like the John Lennon uh, quote from, from 66 when he said that Jesus was more popular than the Beatles. People lost their yeah. minds over that because they couldn't right. understand what the context was. The so same thing with Malcolm. He wasn't saying, gee, I'm, I'm glad that Kennedy's dead. It's, 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 he basically said, if this is the, if this is the, atmosphere that you create, one of hate, one of intolerance, one of, one of oppression, then do not be surprised if it comes back and bites one of your own. That's what he was saying. That's right. what that means. So 
so the Nation of Islam used that as an excuse to kick Malcolm out, and then Malcolm was on his own, and he immediately formed two groups of his own, two organizations of his own, so that he could, in fact, foster the, these political and international thoughts. And um, ultimately, the Nation of Islam thought that he was the one thing that you cannot do is, is badmouth the messenger, the messenger of God. And, you know, as, as, today, as today's events, I mean, recent events have shown, um, certain sections of the Nation of Islam, certain sections of Islam as a religion, doesn't tolerate any kind of dissent. Yeah. So they killed him. Uh, was there any uh, kind of like where the where the CIA or the FBI were they were they were they spying on Malcolm X as is portrayed in that movie? Uh, was Every there any day. kind of like supply that was maybe being given to some of these guys to pull off that assassination? And it was pretty public too. I mean, they 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 killed him. That was the whole point. That was a whole the... bunch of people. A whole bunch of people and his his pregnant wife and and four daughters. Absolutely, that that was that was their mo. That was the uh, fruit of Islam. Uh, their military or militant uh, arm uh, of the nation of Islam. That that was their whole point was to make it very public, to make it very graphic, and and um, to put Malcolm down like that. Um, but like I said, the FBI and the CIA did not need to 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 really do anything. Did they know it was going to happen? Absolutely. Just like yeah. they knew about the other seven attempts on Malcolm's life in the month leading up to uh, February 21st. So they knew it was going to happen and did nothing to stop it. That was February 21st, 1965. Where, where was yeah. that? I've forgotten where he actually was assassinated. Uh, he was, he was um, calling to order a, a meeting of one of his groups uh, at the Audubon Ballroom in... Um, well, we say Harlem, but it's a, it's a, okay, it's, it a it's an enclave right outside of of Harlem, and, and I'm I'm sorry, I can't I can't exactly remember something Heights, but it was yeah, yeah for argument's sake, we can just say Harlem. And, and he was about to go really, um, really, really mainstream because before he had been such an extremist and kind of this uh, radical, um, just kind of in the radical fringe, but right him going mainstream and saying and pretty much putting the nation of Islam and their and their radicalness behind where he didn't believe exactly. that all white people were the devil and all this kind of stuff that he believed before he had realized right. that it was uh that that was just a, a blind teaching that he was being given but absolutely um, along with all the others to, yeah. he was about to team up with Martin Luther King and pretty much bring like the urban black community into in into the civil rights movement. Yes, absolutely. Um he he no longer subscribed to the to to the um tenant of of the nation of Islam that all white people. I mean all white people. If you have if you have uh, uh you know skin pigmentation that that could be classified white, you are automatically the devil. He he no yeah. longer subscribed to that and ironically it was on one of his religious pilgrimages which is which is um required of all uh, followers of, of Islam uh, to go to the holiest city of Mecca and, and make your pilgrimage or Hajj. And it was during that Hajj that he, well, he, he, was, he was 100,000 Muslims every, every year go there, right? And, and he was with people that in this country would be classified as white. So he's drinking right. from the same 
in the same glass and eating from the same dish and sleeping on the same floor and praying to the same God as white people. And so he really had to rethink his, 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 um, uh, his, his attitudes. And, and I think that, that what made him so dangerous at the time was that it wasn't just that he wanted to, uh, to form an allegiance or an alliance with, uh, Dr. King. He wasn't that straightforward. What he wanted to do, what he said, is that despite what he had said in the past, he's willing to work with anyone, including Martin Luther King, whose sole purpose, whose end game, is to end human suffering and oppression, right, and indignity. So it, it was for him, it wasn't just a civil rights cause, it was a human, human rights cause. So he wanted to take the plight of the African Americans in the United States meld them with the problems of other oppressed people around the world and take it to the UN, the United Nations, yeah. and, and say, this is a world problem. This isn't just a, a, a problem for the United States. So he was going international in, in his, in his uh, scope. And, yeah, he, he, was, he was ready to work with anyone who was willing to work with him, which he would never have done, you know, two years previous. This is all stuff that uh, Luke slept through in history class. So yeah, I have no clue what's going on. <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Do you have the dazed look over your eyes now? Again, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I, I think the the glaze on my eyes may be from the beer, though. <laughs> that, that could be. That could be, and, and we won't fault you for that. We will not fault you for that. Now, and, and this brings up an interesting point. I won't. I won't belabor the point, even though I am an historian, and you know. One of the problems that we have now today is our disconnect with history and the fact that we do not we do not cherish it or study it as much as we should or pay attention to it as much as we should. Um, and and the only way that we are going to be able to to grow and to understand the hypocrisy of what's happening to us now is through the study of history because it's not just the names and the dates and the facts and things like that. Like I said, it's patterns of behavior. So as we as we carry this conversation forward, um, you, you will realize that 50 years ago was not so long ago because no, of the similarities before. between then and now. And if we're not paying attention, if we cannot see the similarities, then our rights are going to be, well, if not already gone, taken away, and things are going to be able to, to take place in our name, supposedly, that we never consented to. So let's talk a little. Well, um, in high school, like what's bad too is I graduated high school, not with flying colors or anything, but like I still graduated, and I didn't even remember learning about any of like Malcolm X and like we didn't we didn't really go into. I mean, like I of course I know who Martin Luther is and Malcolm X is, but we didn't ever <laughs> went into like extreme detail about it at all. You know, one thing too is that they—they, they, uh, I remember being in high school, and 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 you know I'm, you know, really good at history and everything, and and it, I can remember just only getting through World War Two. That's all. That's exactly. all we got to. You know. Exactly, and as and as we go forward, we're we're my daughter, my eldest daughter. You know, you don't get much further than that because history is still happening, and our history classes are still being divided up. The Civil War is the cutoff point, right? right? We go from we go from 
you know, basically the birth of our nation in 1609 to the Civil War. Then the second half of U.S. history is the Civil War until whenever we can get to. And usually that ends right. at World War II, or if we're lucky enough, Watergate. Well, shit, that, was, that was 40 years ago. So we're yeah. missing 40 years of, of our own history, which is really important history, because we are so concerned with, well, I guess, I guess the civic duty, the, the, the patriotism of knowing about Abraham Lincoln more than knowing about somebody like Malcolm X. Just, a, you know just, I mean? an obs- just an observance here. I don't know how it is in Detroit where you are, but down here in the South, uh, you go to Books a Million, and there's there's a whole like uh, section to the devoted to the Civil War. Right. And you go to you know I've I've been to several Civil War battlefields. You go to the bookstore, and I'm looking around these books, and I'm just sitting there thinking, how much more is there to be written about this? <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. It it was only four years old. Four years, right? I mean, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't exactly. ten year war like Vietnam. Well, depending on what, again, depending on when you date it. So, yeah, absolutely, because there are so many, because there are so many with 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 history. There are so many different ways to look at something, and there and there are so many uh, undercurrents and motivations, and what were people thinking? So, I guess. For, for people who are really into war as a strategic thing or a political thing or even as how it affected us as a country. Oh, yeah, we could write, we could write lots of books on that. But we don't apply those same uh, criteria to every historical event. We can't because we just, like I said, right. we don't have the time. And, and in this day and age, we are more concerned with common core requirements than we are with the exploration and, the, and really the study of history. Because there's yeah. a lot of stuff that we learn that we really don't need. It's kind of like, well, with things like science and math, they're finite, right? I mean, yes, science changes every now and then, but for the most part, you, you learn how to, you learn this formula to apply it to this, and then you get this. That's not the case with history. So, so history is more fluid, or should be anyway, and it's not. It's treated like any other sign. You must know this. You must know this. You must know this. Based on what? Based on what a textbook is being used or or what kind of perspective the history teacher brings to it. Um, A lot of times people say that the attitude is history is dead, and it is absolutely not. It's only dead if it's presented that way. But it is very much alive. the whole adage that history never changes and, and you know, oh, yeah. but, you know the interpretation yeah. of it sure does. Well, I want to talk right. a little bit about um, the assassination of Medgar Evers. And, yes, you know, which, you which, and happened before, which happened before uh, Malcolm, but okay. Right. And we talked about how, you know, we know that, you know, Medgar Evers was assassinated. There wasn't a big, uh, big conspiracy that it was one guy that did it. As a right. matter of fact, Byron D. Lebeckwith, who was the guy that shot Medgar Evers, who was right. a civil rights uh, civil rights leader, uh, used to live in my hometown, or close right, to my right. hometown, and right. uh, which was interesting. And you know, so we know that it was not a conspiracy. But right. you told me something interesting that it actually, by him doing that, it pretty much furthered the interests of the of the establishment. Exactly. Exactly. If the establishment puts down a dictate that says we don't, 
don't like rabble rousers. We don't like hippies. We don't like anti-war sentiment. We don't like this in society. It, it shows that society is is becoming less patriotic and less American than everybody. And this is a subtle way of doing it. I'm not saying that this is the manifesto from which they're reading. I'm saying this is subtle. Um, if you are a true blue American and you want to preserve the American way of life, then you will do whatever you can to, to put this down. You know, and this is one of them. And it's not just, and it, it wasn't just the act of killing Medgar Evers. It was the fact that how long did it take us to, to, to nail this guy for the, his, his death? Uh, it was 35 years? Exactly. It was, yeah. So 35 years later, that's when justice happens? So what? So so it wasn't just the act. It was, of course, law enforcement. It was the judicial system. It was it was the apathy when a when a when a young black man is killed in the, in well, I could say in the call of duty, his duty in the NAACP, which was doing very important work down at the South in 1963. <clears throat> He's taken out, and nothing and no one cares. Nothing's done. No justice is served. And, yeah, I and think I, they tried. I think they tried Dila Beckwith. Oh, with sure like they All white, all white jury of his yep. peers, and of course they let him off. And right, yeah. it was it was the same thing with 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 Emmett Till. Um, you know, eight years earlier, um, he was really the 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 spring. I mean, it depends on who you ask, but uh, some people say the the modern civil rights movement was was. Uh, springboarded into action because of either the death of Emmett Till, uh, uh, Rosa Parks not giving up her seat on the bus, or, the, you know, the passage of, of um, the board versus the, Brown versus the Board of Education. But what I'm saying is that we, after the, the horrific, torturous death of this 14-year-old boy from Chicago, can you kind of go into that a little bit? I don't think these guys have ever heard of that. I don't know yeah, if they have ever had. No. Yeah, in in the summer of 1955, uh, a young a young man by the name of uh, Emmett Till was visiting some of his family members down south, in Mississippi, and he's from Chicago. So the attitude in the north, although it wasn't you know pristine, it was certainly a lot better than than in the south. And yeah. he was 14, he was cocky, and of course he's from Chicago. And he didn't think that he, there was going to be any, any problem. Well, when he gets down to spend the summer with his cousins, his cousins are basically warning him and saying, look, the attitudes are completely different. This is, this is night and day compared to Chicago. Watch your step. The stuff that you yeah. can get away with in Chicago, you, you cannot get away with here. And of course, what are we at 14? We're cocky and we're like, yeah, sure. So this is incident, Mississippi, right? Yes. So an incident happens at a, at, a, at a local grocery store. You know, the, the, the guys go down to spend their two cents that they've earned in a month on, on junk food, and they go into a general store. And Emmett Till, we don't know exactly what happened, but some, something was said or a wink was given to a white woman who happened to be the, the wife of the owner of the store. And uh, late or, or early, early in the morning, um, Till is awoken out of his bed from, uh, by, I think, four men in a pickup, including the husband of the white woman who had been, you know, 
spoken to, um, yeah. looking for Emmett Till, and they, they went through the house with shotguns and flashlights, and they found T- Emmett, and they took him away. Three days later, Emmett Till's body was found at the basin of a river. He had been shot. His eye had been gouged out. His tongue had been cut out. He had been castrated. Yeah. And to make sure that he, well, probably wasn't, probably so he wouldn't be found, a 75-pound, 100-pound industrial fan was tied around his neck, and he was thrown into the river. Now, the what I think, again, not just the death of this young man and, and, and the horrific way in which he died, but his mother... His mother's action, I think, was even was even greater for the civil rights or, or starting the civil rights movement because she refused embalming. He did not. She did not embalm him, and she had an open casket so that the yeah. world could see what had been done to her fourteen-year-old son. And um, so, of course, yes, they were they were put on trial. All, all all the men, all the white men, were put on trial, and of course, an all-white jury. Um, Failed to to indict or failed to to convict, and then they did they did a lengthy expose in Life magazine in which they confessed to it hmm. because they knew they were safe. They knew that that nothing was going to happen. So oh, yeah, we yeah we we tortured this kid and boy he was he was hard to kill. You know that kind of attitude. Well, probably the sheriff, the police, sure. they were probably all in the clan. Or they were probably all in it together. That that certainly yeah. was characteristic at that time, especially for for southern towns, because that that was remnant of uh, the post Reconstruction and the Civil War, when um, when white people actually had to take back the power <laughs> here in here down you know in down, down south, um, yeah, and they enforced it by with the Ku Klux Klan and and black Crow, <laughs> or black you know. You know, not to belabor this point too much, I don't want to get too much off on this, but, you know, we talk about the Civil War and, you know, what people don't realize is, is that, you know, yeah, the South lost the war. They lost it militarily, right? but they won the political struggle afterwards, which was Reconstruction. Yeah, all the same, all the same guys, except for Jefferson Davis, which is one yep. guy. All the same guys were in control in 1877 that had been in control in 1860. That's right. That's right. So and, there was uh, no. Yeah. So what? So what exactly was won? Especially, yeah. I mean, even even historians or, or um, commenters, commentators who say, "Well, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment." Well, that was a win, wasn't it? Well, no, because even after that, we still needed the Civil Rights Act. We still needed the Brown versus Board of Education. Because right. despite the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that freed the slaves and endangered servit- servitude, actually, endangered servitude, sorry, um, the, the establishing of what a citizen of the United States is, and then, of course, giving, giving um, voting rights to, to, uh, to men, black men, we, we had Plessy versus Ferguson at, at the end of the century, which basically, uh, you know, upheld the separate but equal. So, so you know, a win isn't a win unless you actually apply it and unless you, unless you actually enforce it. 
So, right. I mean, technically, we wouldn't have needed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments if we had upheld the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, right? <clears throat> so it's it's just amazing that we go from the birth of our nation to, well, just 40 years ago. We were still passing legislation 40 years ago to protect the, the, the rights of black people. The and, now, of course, thanks, and now, of course, thanks to the, the um, Supreme Court, they've gutted that. They gutted the, the Voters' Rights Act of 1965, claiming offhandedly, I mean, they don't say it explicitly, but through their, their ruling, they said, hey, there's no more racism. There's no more institutional racism. So we don't have to babysit the states that want to change their voting laws, which is what the, yeah. what, what the, voting, the, the voting Act of 65 did. It said, look, <laughs> if you're going to change your voting laws, you have to ask our permission first because you may want to change it to disenfranchise people like black people, like, like the elderly, like young, like, you know, um, uh, convicts. So before you change your laws, you have to check with us. And that did. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, gu- I was saying I guarantee you there were some civil rights violations in 2000 in Florida. You know, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Supposedly one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so two years world. ago, the Supreme yeah. Court said, yeah, states, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't, have to, you don't have to ask permission to change your voting laws. And sure enough, within 48 hours of, of the Supreme Court and that ruling, nine states, mostly southern, changed their voting laws to disenfranchise blacks, of elderly, convicts. So, yeah. wow. again, and how we could have allowed that to happen, it's, 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 a, it's a lack of uh, understanding our history. But you love America. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Martin Luther King. Okay. And about Robert Kennedy. And you have, you know, those are two assassinations that are basically two months uh, apart from each other. Martin Luther King in April of 1968. And RFK in almost to the day, June two months later. Yep. Yeah, and I, you know, this is one that you know, not even the uh, the family of Martin Luther King believes that. Um, and I'm drawing a blank now on the name of the uh, James, James Earl Ray. Ray. Yeah, James Earl Ray even shot the guy, and That's Ray, right. I think, went to his death saying that he didn't do it. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that say, you know, that, that he did. And, you know, of course, RFK, and you, you get into some weird stuff with that, with uh, Sir Han, Sir Han, and some like... Some you know, really like, bizarre stuff. For the first the, time, we're seeing, we're seeing the, the, the um, fingerprints of the CIA, of intelligence, in Robert yeah. Kennedy's assassination. Well, what do you think with, with MLK first? I mean, do you, what do, you, do you think that that was a group of racists that may have been funded by either the CIA or the FBI? Um, uh, yes, uh, I, I do believe that, but uh, again, it's it, it's not quite as as uh, overt as that, or or as direct as that. Again, you have you have an organization that really is stepping up its efforts, and who had had a a publicly declared war against Martin Luther King since he came onto the scene in fifty six, fifty seven, right? Uh, yeah. J. Edgar Hoover absolutely despised King. Thought he was a hypocrite. Thought that he was, you know, 
communist, right? And that goes back to the old, the, the whole, I mean, talk about overt racism. Um, anytime a, a, an organization, whether it's the NAACP, whether it's um, a Marcus Garvey, whether it's, whether it's SCL, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Council, which is, which is Martin Luther King's group, anytime you have strong, smart black people getting together, to, to challenge the system, the immediate countercharge is that, oh, they're communist. They're, they're funded by communisms, communists because, you see, black people just aren't that smart. So they have to be run by somebody, right? So that's that, that, that overt racism right there. But um, that's what J. Edgar Hoover was living for at that time, was to prove that, that Martin Luther King was a fraud, that he didn't deserve his Nobel Peace Prize, that he was a sex fiend and that he was a pinko and so forth and so on. So his entire organization, the FBI, is trying to nail this guy down. Uh, from even writing a letter, I can talk about, remember, anonymous letters? Yeah. Wrote an anonymous letter to Martin Luther King saying, you know the truth about who you are, a homosexual, um, and you know what you have to do. Uh, trying to get him to kill himself uh, out That's of really coming because... from J. Edgar Hoover. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Talk about a hypocrite. <laughs> was, but... was, uh, was Martin Luther actually gay? No, no, of oh. course he wasn't. But, but J. Edgar but... Hoover was. <laughs> but absolutely. I mean, to the letter, but 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 that that part of hypocrisy, but also kind of the paranoia of 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 J. Edgar Hoover, and that is anything that is that is. Um, what's the word? Um, anything that's perverted, anything that anything that we could call perverted, and that is the kind of that's that's the kind of um, blackmail material that he wanted to get on people like Martin Luther King or politicians or ambassadors or anybody. So the dossiers that he kept and a lot of President. important people, presidents, yeah, absolutely. So that kept his power in check. So, um, so, so, but Martin Luther King, the reason, the reason that he was killed when he was killed, regardless of who you believe was actually behind it, the funding, the training, the cover-up, certainly, if nothing else, we can say that the cover-up was all FBI. Because yeah. what, what that would reveal is, oh, yeah, we knew that he was going to be killed. We, we may have even kind of uh, not hired the guy, but contracted the guy through, through the mafia or through some of our other, you know, senior contacts, which the FBI has been proven to have done, and the CIA. But Martin Luther King was, was finally going through an evolutionary period of his own in his thinking. And for the first time, he was speaking out against the war. And for the first time, he was actually rethinking his position on nonviolence. Now, I'm not saying really? that he was about to become a Robert Williams and every black family should have a shotgun in their, in their house. I'm not saying that. But he was rethinking his previously held positions that made him such a, well, saint and made yeah. him not all that dangerous to the establishment. You know, as long as long as Negroes, you know, kept their place and sat down and or marched and didn't, you know, break windows or shoot white people, that was fine. 
But once Martin Luther King crossed that chasm and said, you know what, Vietnam is completely unjust. Yeah. People were going to listen to him, and how would that, how would that have affected uh, recruitment? How would that have affected the draft? Yeah, exactly. And not, not to mention the fact that you know you had so many African-American um, soldiers that were in Vietnam. Absolutely. And suffering, realizing suffering that a majority, was, suffering a majority of the casualties, even though they were it was a, an inordinate a, number. Exactly. They were they were a huge minority of the troops. You know what, fourteen, fifteen percent. But they're but they're suffering forty to fifty percent of the casualties. That's because they were expendable, right? Send them out for dangerous duty, and you know keep our white soldiers safe. And 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 Martin Luther King was hit for this. He knew that was that was what the pattern was. And if he had made people here at home hip to that themselves, I think people really would have listened. He would have had a he would have had a huge audience. Once he spoke on, once he spoke out on Vietnam, I think that's when he was he pretty much like his death warrant was signed. Exactly. Not to mention labor. He was also getting into labor. I mean, the the, the thing that he was doing the evening before he was killed. Right was trying to settle labor disputes. So now he's getting into areas that he had never delved into before and that could really have an impact on society. Right. So, so that, that's, that's incredibly dangerous. You know, Robert Kennedy is a little bit uh, unusual because we've talked about a lot of like African-American activists so far. But, you know, Kennedy, you know, uh, being the brother of John F. Kennedy, Right. And all those, all those um, different uh, conspiracy theories that surround that. What do you think happened with Robert Kennedy, and why do you think that he was killed? Well, you can't. I don't, I don't think you can make a distinction between um, uh, uh, the Black Liberation Movement and Robert Kennedy. See, that one of the things about Robert Kennedy was. And, and, and a sad undertone of, of his death is that when Martin Luther King died, a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, then put their hopes on Robert Kennedy. Right. That, that if Martin Luther King couldn't take us there, we know that Robert Kennedy will. And, and, and for a white politician at that time to go into ghettos, I'm not at slums, I'm not talking about, you know, black suburbia. I'm talking about slums, you know, in, in Watts after the riot, in Detroit after the riot. He was there. He was everywhere. And not just posturing, he was actually concerned with the plight of black America, from education to employment to uh, political representation to voting to everything. It was amazing that he was that he was gaining the trust and the knowledge of black culture and black subcultures that he really, he basically took black America on his shoulders and was going to carry it into the White House. And now, why I said that, that, that Robert Kennedy's assassination had the fingerprints of the CIA all over it, or at least intelligence, is because this is the first time that we have a documented case of one of the CIA's very own programs coming back. A lot of people, MLK Ultra or, or Mind Control, the CIA was very much into mind control pro, um, 
programs as, as early as 1953 when they're buying up hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of LSD that, that yeah. our scientists had just provided us. Well, we didn't know what it did. Well, in comes the CIA to give it to their own agents and just to find out what would happen. We talked a little bit about this with Nick Redfern last year. Uh, we talked about the Frank Olson, the doctor that was dosed with CIA. Absolutely. He was, Absolutely. He was spill the beans, and then he ended up jumping out of a window. How convenient. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so here we have um, MLK Ultra, and we have or MK Ultra, and then we have uh, also uh, the Manchurian Candidate program, where, where one of those mind control programs is you can program someone to do something that they wouldn't normally do of their own volition. And not only that, but they would then forget that they had done it. Right. So, so Sirhan Sirhan, to this day, and again, this is, this is 45 years later, 45, 46 years later, seven, whatever, I suck at math, um, <laughs> he still maintains that he didn't do it, that he has no recollection of much of that evening at the Ambassador Hotel out in Los Angeles. So do you think that he shot... Robert Kennedy, or do you think someone else did, and Sirhan Sirhan was just placed there in a day? Sirhan, Sirhan, let me make this very, very clear, because it's it's harder for people to, to well, not harder for people, I just, I don't think that people have, has, people have heard this enough, because of mo- most of the attention is on JFK, and the mystery surrounding it, right? Because we don't right. have a smoking gun in Dallas. It's was he behind the bushes? Was he on a roof? Was he in the building? Was he in front? You know, was he in a sewer? You know, I mean, all of this mystery around it. But with Robert Kennedy, oh, there's Sirhan. He emptied his, you know, hundreds of people saw him empty his eight, you know, eight-shot revolver into a crowd. And there's no smoking gun. Well, we got a smoking gun. There it is. No mystery. Sirhan Sirhan did, in fact, fire eight shots, eight rounds from his Ivory Johnson revolver into the crowd where five people were wounded, but none of his bullets struck Robert Kennedy. It was physically hmm. impossible for, for the position that he was in and the position that Robert Kennedy was in and the wounds that were sustained on his body, it was physically impossible for Sirhan to have inflicted any of those wounds. So what we have is we have a second gun in that pantry. And that second gun belonged to a rent-a-thug cop by the name of Thane Eugene Caesar, who was behind Robert Kennedy at the time. Robert Kennedy's wounds were all inflicted from the back at point-blank range and at a very steep upward angle. So when Sirhan started shooting, Robert put his hands up and was falling backwards to get away from the shots, and there was Thane Eugene Caesar behind him being able to put his gun right up against his head and his body and fire three shots. Wow. Well, I want to ask a little bit about the MK Ultra stuff uh, before we kind of move on to Fred Hampton. Okay. Uh, you know, one thing we talked about in here, and there's a connection between the Robert Kennedy assassination of Sir Hans or Han and with John Lennon and Mark David Chapman. 
That's right. And that connection being that the same psychiatrist that later interviewed Sir Hans or Han. Yep. Interviewed Chapman. Mark David Chapman. And it was the same disconnect, that, wasn't it? Do you think that the assassination of John Lennon, of course, we're out of our time frame, this 1980, <laughs> but do you think that that was, that that was MK Ultra? Do you think that there was someone that that was nefarious and they were trying to get rid of somebody? Um, I have not um, spent a whole lot of time um, with John Lennon's assassination. Um, more so, I've been interested in in uh, John Weiner's um, what fifteen year battle to get John Lennon's FBI uh, uh, file released, um, yeah. but. From what I do know about the characteristics of Mark David Chapman and of of um, the aftermath, I believe that it is it warrants absolutely it warrants an investigation. I think that there are enough hints and clues to make anyone suspicious that it should be considered. It absolutely should be considered as as an offshoot of MK Ultra, the Manchurian Candidate, and and yeah. mind control. Regardless of right now. I, I can't. I can't say why. Well, why would the CIA want to, uh, you know, assassinate John Lennon? Well, why? Why would the FBI and the State Department want to kick John Lennon out of the country? Yeah, and they tried. And, and they tried. And they tried because absolutely he was a subversive, and he was palling around with Abby Hoffman and John Sinclair, and you know, SDS, and you know, everyone else. And of course, he's a Beatle, so he's he's instant popularity. He's instant, you know. Um, advertising and and any message that that he uh, you know any message he has will be heard by the world and that you was know, very Chapman dangerous. Made, Chapman made the similar claims that he said that he couldn't remember doing it. Exactly. He couldn't. Yeah. It's it, it's 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 very odd. Uh, I do find myself wishing I would have researched a little more because a lot of this stuff is really interesting to me, but I don't have the the um, background the background knowledge to kind of like. Well, it's never too late. And of course, you and you don't have to. It's not a prerequisite. See, this is the good thing. We're we're not in college courses, so you don't have to have taken this class to take this class. And and as I believe, as Adam and I will be talking about the connection between JFK assassination and 9/11. So even things that are happening today are are pertinent and can be traced back. Well, uh, however far back you want to go. You just pick up the trail. You just what it comes down to is not that you have to be an expert on anything or that history has to be your life. You just have to give a shit because it right. is, in fact, the government that's counting on you not to read and not to give a oh, shit yeah. and to remain and apathetic. And that's true. what I was going to say. Like it's it's not so true. It's not just valid. It's it's kind of important. Like I feel like um, it's something I should pay a lot more attention to. Yeah, you know, it's, all, it's kind of all of our responsibility to keep that kind of stuff in check and I, I don't feel like I do. Yeah. It's so well, even more even more so today when we are losing newspapers by the dozens. So even the right. watchdogs, we, we, we don't have the watchdogs anymore. So we have to be the watchdogs. Right, well and the ones that are out there in somebody's pocket. Right, right. Right. Just telling us you know they've got their agendas and Absolutely. Okay, let's 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 get to talk about uh we want to talk about Fred Hampton and this is something that is like kind of your expertise lately because as i understand you're uh you're writing a book about Fred Hampton about the subject and a lot of people don't know about Fred Hampton a lot of people don't know who he was so can you kind of go over who Fred Hampton was and 
what he was doing and what happened to him. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to preface this by saying that there that it, uh, had there not been Malcolm X, there would not be Fred Hampton. So that's how much yeah. of an influence Malcolm X had on groups that became more radicalized in the, in the mid-late 1960s. And one of those groups was called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. It was founded in California by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton in 1966, in late 1966. Um, yeah, in the wake of, of Malcolm X's assassination. Um, and they were, initially, they were concerned with the police brutality in Oakland, California, uh, notoriously brutal uh, cops who would come into black neighborhoods and basically just harass them, if not outright murder them, just for sport. And as in, in response to that, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton said, uh, we are going to start reading and becoming really good students of Malcolm X and Robert Williams and all of the gentlemen who came before us that said, uh, we are not going to just sit idly by while you brutalize us. We are going to defend our homes and our neighborhoods. And how do we do that? Well, we pick up the gun. Now, does that seem a little extreme? Well, it's, it's funny, too, because in this day and age, when, when it's nothing but gun nuts, right? The NRA rules all. We can't, we can't pass any kind of legislation, even if it makes sense. I and mean, even if the majority of us want this kind of legislation passed, it can't be done because of the NRA. But in 66, out in California, it was perfectly legal for you to carry a weapon so long as it wasn't concealed. So Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, as astute um, students of the law, they were college students, and they knew the law, they picked up the guns because it was legal to do so. And see, when laws are made like that, uh, the white legislatures that make those laws don't apply them to black. Right. So the second the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense picked up their guns and started actually stopping police brutality in their neighborhoods, that's when they said, oh, we got to change this law. So, so they did. In, 19, in May of 1967, they passed the Mumford Act, which made it illegal to carry any kind of weapon. So it was basically an anti-Black Panther legislation. But let's that was only California, though? Well, I, I'm not sure about the other states, but but that's where it was found. That was where the the Black Panther Party for Self Defense was founded. So, okay, okay. but besides self defense, they were also very much into community programs. Uh, whatever the community needed, they would respond to those programs. And what they were doing is they were showing that you didn't need governmental bureau bureaucracy, whether it's on a city, uh, state, or federal level, that we could take care of our own. If if the system will not help us, then we will help ourselves. And so they instituted these community programs. So let's fast forward to 1968, where a young Fred Hampton, and when I mean young, I mean he was 19, yeah. but while he was still in high school, he was the president of the youth chapter of the NAACP in, in a suburb in Chicago. So he was very politically conscious uh, even when he was in high school. Then out of high school, um, he, is, he is being asked actually sit in on community meetings between um, well, whether, whether it's labor, whether it's school relations, whether it's community relations. He was actually being asked to sit in with these meetings so that he could mediate these discussions. People were looking to him even at 18 and 19 years old because of how mature he was and how organized he was for answers. 
So, uh, late 1968, uh, the Black Panther Party was spreading all across the country. It wasn't just out in Oakland. There was uh, an East Coast chapter in New York and North Carolina, and, and chapters were popping up all over the country. And Fred Hampton co-founded the one in Illinois. So, uh, in, in realizing the problems of Chicago and the, and the outlying uh, areas, he instituted a free breakfast for children program so that school children could, did not have to go to school hungry. So that... Uh, what a radical subversive. What a radical it, idea it, that it, is. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because again... <laughs> what, a, what a commie. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, it, but again, that shows that, that um, if, if, if the government will not do what it's supposed to do and take care of its citizens, we will teach the citizens to take care of themselves. Right. So and that's very so, What that? That's very positive. Yes. But of course of course not communist anymore, socialist. The other bad word, right? Yeah. As right. our as our current president is, you know, he's a he's a Kenyan socialist who you know practices Islam, right? Um he's some kind of Muslim. What's that? <laughs> He's just some kind of Muslim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, uh, but other programs that they did were free health clinics, where they were actually getting doctors and nurses to um, volunteer their time, and getting donations from from different organizations and hospitals. Uh, a free busing program, because even back then, again, just like today, the proportion of inmates were black. Uh, disproportionately, were black. Right. They didn't, they didn't create most of the crimes, but they did most of the time. And, it, and unfortunately, it's still the case today, so we really haven't learned that much in the 60s. Anyway, so if, if we have a lot of black people in prison, their families are still going to want to go see them. And a lot of them didn't have cars. A lot of them didn't have a means to get to the prison systems or the prisons that were, that were out in the boonies in, in Illinois. I mean, if you look between you know, Chicago and Menard, where one of the biggest prisons was, um, that's, a long, that's a long trek. So the Black Panther Party instituted the free busing to prisons program, uh, free clothing and free uh, shoe drives, uh, free sickle cell testing, because at that yeah. time it was the emergence of sickle cell being, um, unfortunately, unique to African Americans. Um, and and, and you know, things like that. So, yes. Fred Hampton wasn't absolutely a, a, a subversive in, in, in that way. Um, he went to prison after being convicted of stealing $70, $71 worth of ice cream. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, and in his defense, he says, you know, I'm a big man, but I can't eat no $71 worth of ice cream. You know? Yeah, how much ice cream was that back then? That's got to be <laughs> like, like a lot. Like 250, you know, 250 ice cream bars. But anyway, so, so that was all they needed to try to get him into prison. And while in prison, he basically, again, reinvented, reinvented himself and the Black Panther Party. Uh, came out of prison and wanted to restructure the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party because there were a lot of FBI informants. And so Fred wanted to basically build it up from the ground again and rid itself of either people who were not committed to the Black Panther Party and their programs or... If there are FBI informants, we're going to get rid of them as well. Fred started speaking internationally. 
That is, he made a trip up in November of 1969 and did a tour of Western Canadian universities. And one of the stops that he made was in Regina, or in, in the province of Saskatchewan, and met with Harry Daniels, who was a leader of uh, the Mite organization, or, or Canadian Aboriginals, what we would consider Canadian Indians. Right. And so Fred was looking to ally himself with, with anybody who's, again, just like Malcolm X, anybody whose concern was for people. Didn't have to be black, didn't have to be white, didn't have to be red, although, you know, it was red power up in, up in Canada with the Mite organization, but... Um, and before he did that, he went out to California and met with the national leadership of the Black Panther Party, who that was in absolute tatters. Okay, Bobby Seale was on trial as part of the conspiracy eight. These were eight gentlemen who were accused of be- starting the riot that took place during the D- Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August of 1968. That huge the showdown between cops and protesters, responsible, yeah, eight people responsible for that. And Bobby Seale was one of them. So Bobby Seale's in prison, right? Huey Newton is in prison, accused of shooting a police officer. The next is Eldridge Cleaver. Eldridge Cleaver is in, um, uh, he's in exile in Africa because he's also being brought up on charges that he didn't want to go to prison for. The next is David Hilliard, and David Hilliard was their chief of staff for the National uh, Party, and he was about to go on trial and was trying to decide whether or not he should fight the charges and risk prison or join Eldridge Cleaver in Algiers in exile. And so they called Fred Hampton out to the national office and said, Fred, if David has to go to prison or in exile, will you take over the National Black Panther Party? And he said yes. So he, he goes on his little Canadian tour. He comes back. He purges everyone from the organization except the people that he trusts the most. And two weeks later, he's dead. A, um, a tactical unit of the Chicago Police Department handpicked to work for the state's attorney's office run by Edward Hanrahan raided his apartment with 14 officers, 27 weapons. So that means that each of these officers had two to three weapons apiece to raid Fred Hampton's two-room apartment. Okay? They raided at 5 o'clock in the morning when everyone was asleep, and because, because Fred Hampton's apartment was used as, as, well, a panther crib, what they called it, if people had been working hard that, that night and didn't want to make the trek back to their uh, homes, they could just crash there. So nine people were in that apartment that, uh, on December 4th, 1969. So they raided with, with those four people, or those nine people in there. Um, one unit storms from the back, one unit storms from the front, and converges on the bedrooms, okay, where, where a majority of the people were sleeping, and of course Fred Hampton with his pregnant girlfriend, Deborah Johnson. And they fire. Now, the, the, the uh, official um, count has been anywhere from 90 to 100 rounds, but my research has divulged that it was closer to 120, 140 shots were fired by the police. Now, the police afterwards called it a shootout. That the reason that they started yeah. firing was because the Panthers, 
were armed to the teeth and they were shooting it out with them. But ballistics proved that only one shot was fired by a Panther weapon, and that was a weapon that was being held by Mark Clark, who was the leader in Peoria, Illinois. And the only reason he fired the weapon was because he had just been shot through the heart. So it was like a, it was like a convulsion. It was like he, he pulled the trigger because, well, he was convulsing. Not that he was shooting at any officer. It was just a, a, a muscle re- reaction. So you have 120 rounds versus one round, and they called it a shootout. But the viciousness of the Panthers, and, well, see, this is why we raided them, because they had all these weapons that they were shooting at us. Well, a lot of the weapons weren't even loaded, right? They were, they were dismantled and being cleaned or repaired, okay? So anyway, so Mark Clark is dead, and Fred Hampton is shot no less than five times while he is in his bed. Now, he never woke up. And the reason for this is that an independent autopsy done on Fred Hampton revealed a high level of uh, cecobarbital, which is, which is a, a sleeping pill. And he had high, high uh, concentrates of this in his blood. Fred never drank and did not uh, take any drugs. He smoked but cigarettes, but um, so, so he wouldn't have taken it on his own. And... Um, the theory goes that the one of the FBI informants inside the Black Panther Party um, spiked his Kool-Aid with the Cicobarbital to render him, you know, wow, basically out, so that they could shoot him, you know, like a, a sitting duck. Wow! And, and that was the end of Fred Hampton. You talk about total overkill. Yeah. I mean, just oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They just wanted to make sure, I guess. Well, it seems like with like almost, the hundredth bullet. I, I, that's almost so blatant that it seems like they would have been more discreet. I mean, that's yeah. That's well, no, again, uh, no, again, it, 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 we're at a, we're at a time when when the national attitude about the Black Panthers were that they were radical and they were militant and they were right. they were ready to climb into your bedroom and shoot as many white people as possible, which of course was was not what. What, you know, what they were about. They weren't a racist organization, right? But if there, there was such a, a press about the Black Panther Party being like that, that if you woke up one morning and read that, oh, two Panthers are dead in a police shootout, well, that, you know, that seems like a natural death, doesn't it? You know, they had it coming. But um, so, so the police were able, able to rely on the Daily Machine, Richard Daly, who was, who was the mayor of Chicago, um, you know, to be safe. They didn't have to worry about charges because they ridded themselves or they rid themselves of, of a menace in Fred Hampton. And, of course, once Fred Hampton was dead, the, the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party basically just faltered. Just, it just withered away. So no one was ever prosecuted? No one's ever been brought to justice for this? That, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, the officers were, were investigated by the Internal Investigations Division of the Chicago Police Department, um, there was a coroner's inquest, which found both both bodies found that uh, the uh, killings were justified, even though ballistics, their own ballistics tests, proved that only one shot came from the Panthers. Um, the seven survivors of the raid were all charged with attempted murder, which of course were were dropped because they made a deal. Uh, Edward Hanrahan 
uh, the state's attorney, said that if you don't prosecute my men, we won't charge the Black Panther Party with attempted murder. So the very day that they came back with a justified homicide um, verdict, they dropped the charges against the surviving Panthers. Now, a civil trial was brought by the survivors and Freddie Hampton and Mark Clark's family. It was the largest, longest, and most expensive trial in Chicago to that at that time, and it lasted 13 years. Um, and it settled in 1983, I believe it was. They initially asked for $48 million, and they settled for $1.8 for, for wow. the seven survivors and the family of, of the, the two men who were killed. Um, but 40% of that went to the lawyers, so... 1.8 didn't go very far. That's that's for damn sure. So no, and of course there was there was no um, there was no responsibility ever ever uh, admitted to by by officials. Even though yep. Fred Hampton had been surveilled every day of his life from nineteen from October 1967 to the day that he died, he was surveilled every day. His phones were tapped, his mother's phones were tapped, his mail was being opened, he was being followed, photographed, recorded. The, I, I was the first person, the only person actually, to request and gain his FBI file. My understanding when I first made that request was that it was only 4,000 pages long, which still is, is pretty substantial. It's more like 40,000 pages long. So wow. the interest that the FBI had in Fred Hampton at such a young age speaks to just how important he was and just how effective he was becoming in, in his little community and in Chicago and to hell in the Midwest, too. I just want to know, Luke, um, from at Watertown High School, did they ever talk about this in history class? Uh, you already know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't even take history. <laughs> oh, that's, I, you know, I, don't, I don't want you being that honest. I really don't. <laughs> I'd much rather I mean, hear that you slept through it or something, you know, I don't know. I, I remember taking uh, government and geography. Which obviously did pay off, Adam. <laughs> Adam. Adam likes to give me tests sometimes since he's like such a expert at like uh, European geography. Right. And... Right. It's like where's Montenegro? Uh, well, you know, Craig. Uh, there was a movie that I saw recently. We talked about this last week, but there was a movie that I saw recently called "Let the Fire Burn." Yes. And of course, this is a little bit off, this is a little bit off of our time frame, but this is 1985, and uh, this is about a group called Move. Uh, right. I don't quite know what the acronym stands for, but they were they were pretty much kind of like a radical uh, cult in Philadelphia. Right. And you know they they had they they were around like a cult leader. His name was John Africa, and everybody else in the group, their last name was Africa. It was a primarily African American group and they were radicals right, right. and they had had quite a run-in with the police uh several times in philadelphia in fact like one time in 1978 they had gotten uh they had they had gotten into a altercation with the police a policeman i believe was hurt or died in the in the uh altercation and right. then later on they had set themselves up in this town home 
in a, a kind of like a, a affluent middle class African American yes. neighborhood. Yeah, it's called right? Powelton Village. Yeah. Yeah, and so they had ended up they ended up getting again into an altercation with the police, and the police basically in Philadelphia firebombed them. It killed every. It killed everybody in the group except for two people. It was like a woman and a child. Only two people survived. Yep. It burned down two blocks (laughs) of the city. Yep. And later on, they rebuilt it, and then they had to condemn it in 2000 because it was subpar building material. Right. Exactly. And it's just like this incredible injustice was 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 done to these people but i couldn't help but think about how this group and what happened to them was similar to what happened in waco in 1993 it was the same situation except yeah. you had a police a, a metropolitan police force versus a federal agency right. and you had you had a cult and but people in 1985 when this happened they didn't care nobody cared that's right. That's right. And so I, think that, whole... I think there are similarities between that and the attitudes of, of, of groups that, that, that the government does not take the time to try to understand or what their grievances are or why they would, why they would even stoop to do the things that they do, right? They couldn't right, understand exactly. it, so they, had to, so they had to rail against it and they had to uh, put it down okay. and destroy it. Especially if it, went, if it was counter to, to you know, uh, today's agendas. So. I, I, I want to ask in closing in the time that we have, you know, uh, about the similarities between the JFK assassination, which is what you initially began to study, and yes. 9-11. Right. And also, you know, what conclusions do we draw from these assassinations in the 1960s how does it relate to what's happening today? <clears throat> well, I, okay, I'll, I'll try to take them in, in as <laughs> you know as coherent an order as possible. Um, yeah, I, I, as I mentioned to you uh, last week, I, I tell my students because I, I substitute teach, but I tell my students that the uh, that nine eleven is their generation's version of JFK, and not and not merely because. It was such a horrific event, and, we, and it took us completely by surprise. Um, and that that for generations, we will always ask the question, "Where were you when this happened?" Right? There are very few events in history where you ask that question, and everybody knows where they were when they heard, you know, that Kennedy was assassinated, and that you know, uh, planes hit the towers. Um, but but my reference is to our complete, as a society, our complete handing over of all of our trust to the government in the wake of such shock, right? That after JFK was assassinated, I mean, it just took the wind out of our sails as a society. Whether you were for Kennedy or you, you weren't, or whether you voted for him or not, it doesn't matter. It's that when the leader of the free world is shot down in front of his wife, in broad daylight, you know, that's not something we expect. That's not something we should tolerate, right? So, right. so we clamor uh, for answers. And when the government gives it to us, we say, oh, gee, that's a relief. Thanks very much. Right? right. 
Um, so, so the, regardless of how quickly the cover-up happens, how how obvious the cover-up happens, it's obvious to us now because, well, it's it's hindsight. We're not grieving anymore. You know, when I started reading on the JFK assassination, it was less than 20 years after his assassination. I wasn't alive. I, I it didn't affect me that way, so I could see it. I could see it. This is obvious to me. Are you kidding me? Right? And it's the same thing with 9-11. But also in the way that it was investigated. That, right. that to me, is the scariest part, where in both cases there was a complete, I'm talking complete, disregard for physics, for science, for evidence, for eyewitnesses, for conflicts of interest that hampered the investigation and made it simply unbelievable, okay? So um, those, those similarities just, just alone is, is enough to warrant a, a serious, serious reinvestigation into, into what happened on 9-11, both before, during, and after. Because like I said, it, um, almost, I'll have to say, Unapologetically, the government came back and said that no, building number seven came down, was brought down by an office fire. A 47-story steel structure building came down all by itself because of isolated office fires. Yeah. And that, and that even their own experts had said, no, that's physically impossible because when the building collapses, it is in free fall. That's, that's physics. That's science. That's, un, you know, you, you, can't, you can't get around that. Um, then, of course, the, the, um, all of the steel that was uh, taken from uh, ground zero and only fragments of it were preserved. The rest were, hauled, were, were shipped off to, I believe it was Asia, where they were going to then recycle it. They were going to melt it down and recycle it. So not even the, the evidence was preserved before, before, uh, before a complete investigation could be, could be done. Weren't the architects uh, like forced to retract their statements a little bit after that? As far as what? As, oh. as far as as far as their their opinions, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When they said it was structurally uh, impossible, they were forced to retract their statements like shortly after. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was structurally impossible unless this happens, and of course, the this was just was was preposterous and and couldn't happen, right? Like the fires for for that to have taken place the way they said that it was it took place, the fire would have to be like three thousand degrees Fahrenheit. And it never got that far, you know. It never got that hot. Not even, not even by half, right? Um, right. So, you know, almost, almost to the point where they're blaming the architects, the original architects of the twin towers, right? If they had built a better building, damn it. Well, then you know, it was because of the way it was built, it was susceptible to to collapse because of this, which is a joke. That's just like saying that President Kennedy. Uh, it really should be reclassified as a suicide because who rides in an open limousine without its bubble top? You know, I mean, <laughs> you, you, you don't blame the victim for, you know, for, for what happened. So, um, yeah, there are just, there are still way too many, 
it's still too many un, unexamined, uh, under-examined um, aspects of 9-11 and, of course, the JFK assassination that absolutely cries out for reinvestigation. And for me, uh, it was it was it was the unmitigated gall. It was it was the um, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, to struggle to find the word because it, I really want it to be the right one. Uh, almost arrogance on the part of Bush, saying that he'll cooperate with the 9/11 Commission, and here how I, here's how I'm going to cooperate. Cheney and I, Dick Cheney, my vice president and I, will appear together before your body. Yeah. But we, but yeah. we want all of the questions submitted to us first, and we will decide what you're going to ask and what you're not going to ask. Also, there is going to be no recording of it whatsoever. No stenographer, no tape recording, no filming, no photographing. And then, and then, we'll, and then we'll agree to meet. Right, you know, I mean, here, here, exactly. Here, here is the 9-11 Commission, the Presidential Commission, with subpoena power, and they don't use it at all. They, they just they bow to, to Bush and Cheney's wishes to, uh, to answer only those questions they feel comfortable asking or answering, and only if they're not recorded. I, I, that right there says complicity. You know the big thing that gets me and has always gotten me was the uh, the passports that somehow travel through an exploding airplane, fall to the ground, and that happen to be the uh, passports of the hijackers and get found a little bit singed down on the ground. You know, absolutely. Adam, oddly you, enough, Adam, you hit it right on the head. And as a matter of fact, if you if you really want to draw comparisons between the JFK case and that case, that little passport that they found. That's the magic bullet of the 9-11 case, you know? Just like we can't have a bullet <laughs> pass through 11 layers of cloth, 7 layers of flesh, and smash two bones in a man that stood 6'4", and then come out with its original shape and original um, uh, weight. You know, yeah. that's, that's what little, the magic bullet is. Absolutely. The FBI ballistics expert said there doesn't even have to be any loss because it was, it was 158 grains. And when they did comparison uh, weights to the same kind of ammunition, it varied. You know, not every bullet weighs exactly the same, so it varied. So he says this bullet that you say went through both men, it might not have lost any weight whatsoever. Another and, and, similarity. And bullets just don't do that. Yeah. This pres it goes through hell, but comes out pristine. Same thing with the passport. Right. Another similarity, too, is, you know, between the 9-11 hijackers and, and Lee Harvey Oswald is that you have these 9-11 hijackers that, you know, in my opinion, you, you really don't need anything about the, you know, the planes, the buildings could have fallen because cause the planes crashed into them. Right, uh, right. Building 7 is weird, but if you look at the odd, the, the oddness of the 9-11 hijackers, who were they? You know, we don't know who this, these guys really were, who they were really working for, uh, where their money was coming from. Exactly. Uh, the, the wire transfers from Pakistan, which was from the... The Pakistani ISI, their intelligence service, which is just in bed with the with the CIA. That's right. Uh, you know, 
we don't know who these guys were. The same thing but with what, Oswald, where he was in Russia for he was in Russia for a year and was able to bring his Russian bride back, and and you know people that uh, that had. Um, communist affiliations in the United States were, were, were persecuted, you know, but he can come back from Russia and everything's okay. That's right. And he's hanging out, he's hanging out with this, this <laughs> supposed communist hanging out with these, uh, with, with, what is it? George DeMorlenschild, who's this, yep. uh, you know, uh, right wing, you know, fought in the Russian civil war against the communists. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. Ab- absolutely. So what's what's the one thing we can say about the hijackers is that none of them have the capability of flying a plane the way that it was said these planes were flown. So you're absolutely right, Adam. We we don't have to we don't have to dig any further to scratch our head. It, from the get go, we're scratching our head. Okay, so it's physically impossible for planes like this to do what was attributed to them. Just like with Oswald, he could not have done what they attributed because he just didn't have the capability. Because the last oh. time that the government could put a rifle in, in Lee Harvey Oswald's hands was four years prior to the assassination. And then, of course, yes, you're right. He didn't spend one year in Russia. He spent three years in Russia. And that right there yeah. is, excuse the pun, the red flag. He was in the Marines, and they claim that that is when he started really getting his interest in, in communism and taught himself how to speak Russian, if you're in the Marines at the height of the Cold War, you wouldn't have survived if you had even said the word yet. Okay? They yeah. would have beaten your ass to a pulp. Right? <laughs> but here, here's Oswald saying that their nickname for him was Oswaskovich because they thought it was funny that he was reading communist newspapers and reading Marx and that, you know, that uh, he, he, he was teaching himself the Russian language, which he wasn't. He was being he was he was taking classes in the Russian language, but but that tells you right there that just yeah, the fact that they didn't kill him on the spot that that he was being trained for for something. Didn't it make you mad that they bombed them towers? <laughs> This, this is the perfect spot to uh, get get that Daryl Worley song. To, to insert that in, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. My, my buddy, my buddy Daryl Worley. And we, we we know so much too now about like Operation Northwoods, and we know that those ideas yeah. have always been there. You know, false false flag terror attacks. Operation Northwoods, by the way, which Kennedy had uh, you know said we're not doing this. That's right, because it's uh, well a little too extreme for me, guys. You know, I'm I'm pretty liberal, but no, thanks. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not starting a nuclear war. So you absolutely, can and I'm not going to annihilate millions of people just for world domination. No, thanks. I believe that that that's yeah. you know a little, little Actually, too much I, I think um, you need but, to use. Go ahead. Sorry. But yeah, but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, for those people who don't believe that there could have been any government complicity in either the events of 9-11 or the cover-up, forget that our beloved Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself, not while he was alive, of course, but afterwards, uh, was also embroiled in controversy because there are many scholars who believe that he knew damn well that Pearl Harbor was going to happen. And how many people did we lose in Pearl Harbor? Nearly 2,000 people. That's pretty extreme. That's, that's, that's an extreme thing to let happen 
so that you can justify getting into the world war. So if you don't, and so if you don't think that the government is capable of making a decision that the good of humanity isn't worth two, three thousand people, then you don't read your history. We we right. we already have had. Uh, you know, um, events in history where decisions exactly like that have been made. On the, uh, you know, right on the, on the cusp of, of genocide, we've made those kind of decisions that we weigh the good of humanity against a few. So I, I, I can completely get my head around the motivation of, of our government sacrificing 3,000 people if it means, you know, the good of the nation. I've always looked at it like this, um, that it happened early in the morning. It was, it happened before the twin towers were at full capacity. Yeah. They were completely full. If you're going to run a military, and if it is a military operation, you want to do with as least casualties as possible. That's right. You still want to make your point, but yeah, with as least with at least as little as few casualties as possible, absolutely. And you mentioned Pearl Harbor. I mean, what nine months, a year before? Nine yep. eleven uh, with the project of the New American Century. A lot of who's a lot of the guys that were in the Bush administration uh, came absolutely. in were from that. Uh, That's right. For from that group that said that we and mentioned you know, it by and mentioned Pearl Harbor by name in that little in that little manifesto. Absolutely. We're never going to get this done unless barring another Pearl Harbor. That's and, you right. You know one thing that one thing that I remember. What was the big movie that was out? The the big movie that was out in two thousand one. Pearl Harbor. Harbor. Pearl Harbor. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we got to yeah, uh, I was just I was just saying, like, as an outro song, one day you need to use uh, Rammstein's "We're All Living in America." <laughs> yeah, right. Actually, that's perfect. <laughs> that's absolutely perfect. We're all. Well, Craig, you've been a, you've been an excellent guest. Guess we've 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 learned a lot here. Well, I and, appreciate uh, having me on. Very generous. I have as well. My well, brain keep... is throbbing. Good. <laughs> it, 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 it's expanding. That means it's expanding. I've learned I have a lot so, yeah, if, if, if that's if that's the if that's the best message or or the most effective message of of being on the show is just you know keep your wits about you keep keep reading yeah. just don't 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 be apathetic because we do not want to be the United States of apathy we want you know yeah this is very this is a very refreshing topic um, to get away from the ghost thing for a while so uh. <laughs> amen to that. <laughs> But anyway, Craig, stay on the line for us. We're going to close out this section and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. I'm here and I got to live. <laughs> Depopulization. Yeah. Let's, so somehow we've gotten on this subject. Let, I don't know how that is. Let, how exactly that happened. Let's wipe the planet clean and start over. <laughs> we need to have a whole show where we just interview you and talk about how you just want to destroy everybody. How Luke kill, feels. Kill everybody in the world. <laughs> how Luke feels. Poop, 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 <laughs> Luke's corner. <laughs> well, how do you feel about depopulation, Luke? I feel that there should be a lot less people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we we were you know between the interview and the the uh, outro here, we usually do a little chat here, and Luke was uh, was talking about how he doesn't uh, think that kids. You see why anybody would want to have kids? Yeah, and, I I was explaining like. 
you know, if you're... If you, is, okay, it's still going. Yeah, it's going. <laughs> I don't know why it's lagging like that. Word. I was just saying, like, I don't really understand why couples feel the need to have babies. Yeah. You know, because I'm saying, I was saying, like, if someone is feeling the need to be a parent, uh, uh, I don't, what's the word for it? Like nurture, Mater- nurturing, maternal, maternal instinct. Yeah, there you go. Like, instinct. Yeah, there's there's so many kids that that need the attention already that are just you know illegitimate kids floating around. Like, go take care of one of them. Don't have your own and keep on adding to the population problem. It is a problem too. I mean, look at India. Look at uh, parts of uh, Western Africa, dude. Like, look at even part. Look at L.A. Look at New York, man. That's a huge problem. There's way too many people. <laughs> You guys ever done an episode on the Georgia Guidestones? Yeah, we uh, we've talked about yeah, it sometimes. We did an yeah, entire, with, with yeah. Doctor Future. Yeah, we did. An uh, we talked episode. a little bit. Uh, not an entire episode. We did talk to him a little bit. Oh, well, about most it. of it yeah. felt like it was Georgia Guidestones. <laughs> yeah, but. Georgia Guidestone stuff is 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 interesting. We yeah. Luke and I've been down. We've been down there. I've been over twice. Yeah. Really? It's not too far. I mean, it's only in the like just uh, what is El- it, east El- of Atlanta, Alberta, Georgia. Yeah, yeah, Elberton, uh, Georgia. Uh, oh well, uh, yeah, Doctor Future. I've I've never. I don't think there is anybody that knows as much about the subject as he does. He's probably like the. I'll go back and listen to that. Yeah, he does. He does know a little bit about it. Of course, you know, there's some stuff that he can't say because this is all part of like a documentary yeah, that's coming right. out. But uh, he's like the authority on it, dude. Yeah, uh, he's got some information and some very interesting information. I, I'll just put it like this, and it kind of goes into a little bit what we were just talking about. Is that some of these guys that. Uh, put this up, you know. A lot of people say the, that the Georgia Guidestones was all like the Illuminati, and it's all this kind of thing. Well, some of that that research that has been done by him has led it to be like these, these guys are more like really ultra right wing, really, really very like American fascists, basically. Uh, which kind so, of goes hand in hand with what people's misconception of the Illuminati actually is. Right. Right, exactly, and we could <laughs> we could spend a lot of time on that, but you know, I just want to get you guys ideas of what's uh, you know some of the information that you just heard from Craig Ciccone and you know what you guys thought of it. Um, well, like I like I said, you know, I I didn't even have to take history, and I don't care about go ahead dog water town, dude. I don't care. I I had <laughs> I had water town straight. I had a couple. I had a couple teachers that like really care. Okay, well, I'll say three. I had three teachers that like really cared. You know, and they yeah. they did a great job, dude. Like they knew what they were doing, and they tried to instill you know what they were teaching into the students, and they really cared. And then like all the rest of them, they're like <laughs> seven. You made a seventy. You passed. Oh no no no. You made a sixty eight. So I'm gonna give you a couple more points so you can get through my class. You know, mo- mo- <laughs> most teachers were. Uh, most teachers are just probably just trying to get through the day, trying to get through the year. Yeah. And a lot of things are going on with teachers right now. That you know, they they gotta teach to the test and teach. You know. It's, it's all about testing and about curriculum. Yeah, right. Well, well you, common you see, core stuff. You see all here. of the attacks on the education. I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I looked at the statistics about, um, you know, who the most educated countries in the world are. Yeah. And America is at, like, 11th or 12th place. Right. Wh- which isn't terrible. It's better than I thought it was. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Well, I terrible, guess we're better but... than like Chad or South Sudan or something like that. <laughs> Somalia. <laughs> yeah, Somalia. Some place that's in utter chaos. So, how do you find your meals? Oh, I go rob ships with my bazooka. 
<laughs> Have you ever thought about farming? <laughs> I don't know how to grow. I just buy weapons exactly. and kill. No, no, it's my phone here. I buy weapons and kill. <laughs> I buy weapons and kill. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, man, I, that was a really refreshing um, show. I'm trying to get away from like the ghost stuff for a little while. <laughs> not that it's not interesting to me, but it's like we've we've kind of mined that a lot, and I really want to try to talk about more of the uh, uh, conspiracy stuff on this show because we are conspiranormal after all, right. you know. Well, that's that is part, half paranormal, so it does make sense. Right, exactly. Uh, next time is an interesting guest and one that I'm really proud to have on. We're going to talk to uh, Dr. James Fetzer. And Dr. Fetzer has talked a lot about 9-11. He's talked about the Kennedy assassination. He's also, right now, his big thing is on the whole Sandy Hook thing. So I definitely want to get him on there. And I know, Luke, you, 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 you like snoring over Sandy Hook and I'm getting find burnt. it really boring. I'm getting burnt out on those topics. <laughs> well, what, I'm gonna ask, what I want to ask him really is we talk about Sandy Hook. And uh, he's one of these guys that looks at it and says that there was nothing that ever happened at Sandy Hook and that it was all like a, um, like a drill and that they used it as a PR thing to try to ban guns and, and whatever. But, you know, Luke and I, we look at it differently. You know, we look at it as that there was actually a shooting that took place, but it probably wasn't necessarily the Adam Lanza guy that did it. And I definitely want to talk to him about some of the other shootings, like the shooting in Colorado in 2012, the Batman shooter, and also what happened at Santa Cruz with the whole... Um, uh, what was that kid's name? No, I'm really drawing a blank. Shows how tired I am. Okay, so if my car's in your driveway and the garage door is opening, then well, that would probably be the wife coming in. So I guess we probably need to uh, to, <laughs> to end wrap this it here. up, and guys. She doesn't know where you're here, so no, I'm just joking. But uh, we're gonna have like a lot of good shows. Got to some good guests scheduled the next couple of months, and uh, guys, really want to thank you for listening. Uh, join us next time with uh, Dr. Jim Fetzer on. Conspiranormal! Death to Kid Rock. We're all living in America, America, it's wonderful. Schluss. Weiß noch nicht, dass er tanzen muss.
say again, please. Hey, uh, we've had a problem here. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.